Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to another One Path podcast. Forgive me about my voice, but the show must go on just like parenting, which just so happens to be the topic of today's show. I'm joined with my co-host today, Brother Hisham Krayam, a friend of mine, a father of two, just like me, a father of two, with our very special guest, Sheikh Hussain. Looking forward to this episode. I think parenting, Sheikh, is a big topic today. Mm-hmm. Us younger parents, we're thinking about a lot of things, a lot of challenges that we're constantly thinking about parenting, schooling, uh, protecting our kids, the faith, all these things. So I think to start off with, we're really looking at what is the role of a Muslim parent today? First and foremost, Jazakallah for having me on. It's a pleasure and honor to be able to discuss Thank such you. An Thank you, Sheikh, for joining us. Very, very important topic. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for khair and benefit and barakah in our discussion today, inshallah. Look, I think just in terms of responsibility, just before we get into that, I think I always sort of like to make this point that hidayah um, and that we acknowledge hidayah and what is hidayah. And we look at just two examples that you can be the son of a prophet. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ultimately will that hidayah not be given. Mm. Or mm-hmm. you can grow up in the house of a tyrant, but your destiny is that you're a prophet. Mm-hmm. Musa. Uh, in the case salam. of Pharaoh and Musa, alayhi salam. And Nuh for the And Nuh. Yeah. So hidayah and Allahu al Hadi is completely, oh, that, that's who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. And so we always ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for hidayah. mustaqim. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this at the conclusion in Surah Al Fatiha. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not the being who just gives hidayah as a one-off and then nothing comes after. It's not a, a one thing and nothing after, no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he gives hidayah and constantly gives hidayah on a person's pathway. So this is really important that we start that way. Look, in terms of responsibility, there's so many ways that we can talk about um, responsibility, but fundamentally, parents are responsible for the upbringing of their child, but in mm-hmm. a number of facets. So we're talking about religiously, psychologically, emotionally, morally, and also intellectually. I mean, if we just look at some of those things, the Prophet ﷺ, in terms of the responsibilities that he conveyed, he showed and he demonstrated from a moral facet, he would constantly uh, touch the heads when he was walking through the streets. If he saw someone, young child, he would put his head over that young child. A young girl would walk with him in young Medina. Young girl would walk with him in Medina, ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, even on occasions, uh, he would have young people, really young people, sitting with him, and they would love to be in his presence. So, from a moral perspective, this is really important. The Prophet ﷺ said that a person, a parent, teaching their child good manners is much more valuable than a person giving a stack of grain in charity, mm. so emphasizing masuliya. And the Prophet ﷺ, look at what he said: "Ala kullu ra'in masul, wa kullukum masulun an ra'ayati." We're all shepherds. We all have responsibility for looking after our family and our children. So from a physical facet, from an emotional facet, that we we correspond with their emotions, we we look after their emotions, this is really important. But there's one facet that's also really important, the psychological perspective. Yep. And often parents can neglect the psychological perspective. I do want to talk about that a little bit more depth later on. But 
um, you know, in terms of how we treat our children, in terms of how we talk to our children, in terms of how we engage our children, this all has bearing on their psychology. And there's this, there's this, if you like, this chain or this cycle uh, that how we treat our children has that bearing on their psychology. And when they grow up, they could replicate that. So we've got to be really careful in terms of how we impart and how we perform and execute our parenting and those responsibilities. 100%. And then religiously. Yeah. Then religiously. And that, because one thing, and I just want to make this point that the idea about parenting is not, the objective about parenting is not to win their love at all costs. That's not the main objective of parenting. Sure, we want their love, and human beings are naturally inclined to love. We absolutely love them with every fiber of our being, but we don't parent that way. We don't parent with the idea of, I want to win their love at all costs. The idea is, I have responsibilities I need to execute. If I execute them well, they will end up loving me. But if you end up giving children everything they want and could possibly ask for, they'll end up hating you and they'll end up disliking you. It's just part of the ego. So a parent means that you parent properly. It doesn't mean that you can't say no. It doesn't mean that you can't be firm. How do you do it then? Mm. What is done and what's the objective? So the objective is that I instill values, right? This is your this is your job. A teacher. Would you say You're the a primary objective would be to You're be a, a teacher? Absolutely. You're a guide. You're an instructor. You're a mentor that you you teach well, right? You teach well, you upbring them well, you give them a sense of value in life. You teach them what the over, overarching objective is to mm. life and you teach them good character. Yes. These primarily in a nutshell, as a parent, some of the things that you should be doing, be active, physical, uh, also in terms of being in touch, um, in terms of, you know, with with your feelings, with your time, with your, with your body, mm. with your attention. These are some of the things that parents have to look out for and, and, and introduce into their parenting. Sorry to cut you, but you touched on something very important. You mentioned the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He says, all of you are shepherds and all of you are responsible for your flocks. But even within that hadith, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, the husband or the father is a shepherd, but also the mother is a shepherd. Correct. So clearly there's a distinction. So before we do go deeper, what are the, I guess, the distinctions between the father and the mother? Because both of them play a pivotal role in, 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 in the life of a child. We said, you know, one of the objectives is to be a teacher, provider, and many other objectives. But how do we distinguish between the role of the father and the role of the mother when it comes to this topic of objectives? I think it's a really important question. And I think we always look at it from this facet that it is a partnership and they have to work together. And certainly they do play different roles, but it is ultimately a partnership where they both work together for the collective well-being of that child. And I think this is really, really important. And, you know, the, the, there's no question that there is a, a disciplinary feature uh, that does come uh, from both parents, but also from the father as well in, in, terms of, um, in terms of when we look at the dynamic of what role does each person play. But, Let's start with the mother. Well, the mother, see, the, the, this is, I mean, it's so important that we look at um, uh, just the concept and the, and the origin of a mum, mm -hmm. you know, where, where that concept of the womb, uh, rahim, has the same root with where rahma comes from. And so mother certainly brings the compassion, mother certainly brings the mercy, mother brings the feeling and being really in touch with that. I think this is really important. You know, the hadith where the Prophet, you know, he spoke about loving the mother and loving the mother. The father gets consolation, right? But 
having <laughs> three the, times, yeah, three times, right? In terms of in terms of loving the mum, but the father has a disciplinary aspect. So there are certain times where that where the, where the son needs guidance, right? And that guidance is given by either the father or a or a dominant male figure, some type of male figure in that person's life. Like I said, every relationship is different. People might not have their father. So it's boundaries as well. Yeah, they, it may be the case. So whether it's the father, if, if, if they're in the child's life or a male dominant figure that is imparting that very important guidance at that time. And it may be, um, you know, something that is required per an event or just generally growing up. But having that input is key to who we are. It's part of our identity to have that guidance in our world, in our, in our life. And hence, this is the construct that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he made for us, that these both these uh, these people have impact on our world. And so, yes, the father does play disciplinary role, a mentoring role, right? A guidance role. Especially in the case of a boy or a son. Absolutely. Ghazali had this interesting point and it was about the father's impact. And he spoke about it and he said, when a father comes to counsel his child, the father shouldn't counsel his child all the time. So for everything, because what will happen is that the father will lose his awe about him if that happens, if he does that all the time. So you need to be strategic. You know, if something didn't pick go right battles. for you, yeah, you got to pick your battles. If something didn't go right, then you can interject. So Ghazali was specifically tapping into that disciplinarian role that the father has, but also to the extent that you don't overdo it, right? So you got to, there's an impact, but you don't overdo it. You don't overstep the mark because then you don't want children to become deftone, right? To only hear certain things because they've heard so much previously. So good guidance also means that it's disseminated in a beautiful way. It's disseminated in a pleasing way, right? I can still give advice, but be be happy about it and be be comforting about it. I don't have to be aggressive about it. I don't have to be uh, uh, you know overboard about it and I don't have to stress that it's the end of the world, right? Yeah. So even the way that you impart information, that you impart advice, even when things go wrong, you can be collected, you can be calm, um, and you can give guidance in a way that is pleasing to others. I think this is a really key point. That's what Ghazali was saying, the, the father's impact into the household. So you you have this beautiful environment set up in your home, both parties playing their roles. Um, and in those situations where people don't have a, you know, a father figure, a, 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 a mother figure, that's okay, right? That's okay. The caretakers um, should be executing and fulfilling these principles that we've been speaking I guess about. that's why the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam gave us that hadith. Absolutely. The caretaker of the orphan is like that in Jannah because look at your role. Absolutely. You're coming into literally the weakest person in society, a person who has no family, no father, no mother. This is essentially the weakest person in society from a from a power standpoint because no one's going to protect you and uphold your honor or provide for you like your mother and father would. And so when you step into those shoes, look at the the great reward you're given. Absolutely. But I also want to make this point, um, and I think it's really important point to make, that not all of us have our parents. I mean, I, I am at a school at the moment. I teach at school, and not everybody's parent is in their life. Um, some people don't have fathers and some people don't have mothers. The Prophet Sallallahu yeah, Alaihi the Prophet is, is an example of that. So some people are without parents entirely. And some people, I know someone who grew up with their grandparents and I know somebody who grew up in a foster home. And so I think this is an important point to make. And so whoever the caretakers are going to be, I think those fundamental principles need to be at the forefront, which is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he mentioned 
and stressed and underscored. So in terms of religious religious upbringing, in terms of moral upbringing, in terms of character. You know, the Prophet ﷺ, he also spoke about, uh, you know, if someone comes asking for your daughter's hand in marriage and they have good faith and good character, right? So the Prophet ﷺ didn't restrict it to only faith, but he, he coupled it and he joined it to character. So that's why the Prophet ﷺ said that a, a father teaching his child, and here he made that emphasis, um, is more valuable than giving a stack of, uh, of of a stack of grain in charity. So that's in lure of that in terms of character. Look how valuable it is. So those those fundamental principles have to be there. Whoever the guardian is, uh, but if the parents are both there, definitely they have that responsibility. They have to execute that responsibility and not fall short in that regard. Because I just want to underscore this very point. The concept of the village is nearly dead, mm. right? The concept of the village is almost virtually non-existent. We we're now living in a society where a society is geared towards anti-tradition. Um, it's anti-tradition, anti the anti the prophetic tradition of the Prophet mm. Whether it's the customary norms or what has become customary, the understanding of family, yeah, Western secular modernity, the concept of freedoms. You know, you look at what freedom means. People are defining now for our children what freedom is. And they're, and they're painting this in clear, solid terms. This is what denotes freedom. And that underpins the Islamic ethos, that, that undermines the Islamic ethos of what freedom is. Freedom is found in servitude to God. Freedom is not do what you want, when you want, and how you want, mm. which is what society is doing. You know, before we would say the village would upbring our child. It takes a village to upbring a child. But now that concept of the village doesn't exist anymore. There's more pressure on the parents now. Absolutely. Which is so that that emphasizes even more for the for what parents need to be exercising and fulfilling at home uh, in in their in their houses. Uh, with their children and how they raise their children and what values they instill in their child and around their children. Okay, so so the concept of the village being dead or going away, is there any obligation upon us to actually try and create some sort of modern village, not a, a literal one, but through networks or something like this? Or is it that this is a situation we just have to adapt and deal with it? I think at the very least, we should all be creating the dynamics of the village in our homes first and foremost. And that's where it, that's where it begins. So every day, personally, from, from my facet, I sit down with my kids after Maghrib every day and we have a hadith reading and we, mm. we, we discuss issues, we talk about topics um, and that could be anything and everything. And it could be about, you know, having love for this world and having love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what are the main objectives and not to be forgetful and always remember Allah and it doesn't matter if this happens because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, these, the, these concepts and these uh, these purposes, having these purposes in life for which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us is important to be able to instill in a child every day. Remember, right? Contribution to any relationship is key. Yes. Contribution. So what contribution are you putting into your family every day? Yes. What contribution are you putting into your kids every day? Even small reminder, even if it's only five minutes, if it's only 10 minutes, you're driving them to school maybe, maybe that's the only time you get with them. Mm. That's where you can set up your village. The village is the car, right? The village is is the home time, it's it's the dinner time, it's that time. But there's got to be an environment which is so key to that upbringing and at least gives you that space to be able to impart your message as a parent to your child. But also you've got to be mindful of friends. Who are their friends? Who Who is in their immediate environment? 
But what is also crucial are who are their mentors? Who are they growing up with? Yeah. Look, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there was a young boy, authentic hadith, sitting with the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ was given a cup of water to drink. Now, this young boy sitting with the Prophet ﷺ on the right of the Prophet, and there were these elderly men sitting on the left of the Prophet. So they come to the Prophet ﷺ, they give him the water, and the Prophet ﷺ looks to this young boy on the right, and he seeks permission from that young boy to offer the people on the left, because the sunnah is to give to your right. Mm. But the Prophet seeks permission from this young person to give to the people on the left first. So this young boy, he doesn't accept, and he said, I have more right to drink from your blessed hand than they do. So the Prophet Muhammad gives, passes him the cup, and he drinks from the water. But what's so significant here is that this young person was sitting in the presence and company of the Prophet That was their environment. And so nowadays, we need to look, who are the righteous people amongst us? Don't just keep your children between four walls and, or only amongst their own peers. Sure, that is that is important. But it's also important to, to give good exposure to religious people, to good people. People are going to talk about the right stuff, talk about good stuff, impart these values and morals. So then they too can emulate that. It's all about positive influence, positive influence mirroring, which is so important. Kids mirror anything in their in, in their environment. You yell, they yell. You huff and puff, they huff and puff. You talk back, they talk back. You're resistant, they're resistant. However you display to a child, they will mirror you tamaman, exactly. So you got to be cognizant and aware of what you're doing. Because you're their teacher after You are their teacher. You huff and puff, it won't be long before they huff and puff, right? You introduce them to a certain trait, before long – they, they soak up whatever is in their immediate proximity, in their environment. They're like a sponge. You're the only teacher. So how you behave, how you respond, how you react to certain things, right? That's exactly how they react. If something happens with a child and your first point of, of reaction is, oh, it's like it's like a, 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 a exhalation. It's like you're frustrated. Kids will mimic that eventually. As opposed to if you say, it's okay, it's all right. Like the cup broke. That's all right. That's fine. These things happen. I've had first-hand experience with that exact same instance where I taught my son, it's okay, we'll clean it up. And then the next day or like a week later, my other son would break something. And my little son is only two years old, two and a half. He would walk up to him and he'd say, it's okay, we'll clean it up. Alhamdulillah, that's one of the good experiences, but amongst the many other. <laughs> this is mirroring. This is mirroring 101. This is what it is. They, they will mimic you. They will... They will soak that up and they will take it on board and that's who they become. And we only have a short window. So kids, the moment they become aware, they start to learn. The brain is one of the most sophisticated, really organic computers that we have. So the moment they become aware, these faculties that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us, they start to learn. And there's a lot of studies as well on what happens between the moment they become aware and four years old. And some say that extends up to six years old. So, but in that period is the most crucial period to imbue them with the values and skills that they need for life. And we've got to be really careful because parents also, what do they bring to the to the table? Potentially they bring their own trauma because kids, the way that they've been brought up, they want to bring their kids up the same way. Now, this, this might not be fitting depending on how you were brought up and how you were raised. And our parents may have had their own circumstances. You know, we come from a generation where a lot of our parents – Fled war-torn countries. Right, yeah. we're, our, we're, we're first generation Muslims living in Australia. We've had a lot comfortable life. We've had a lot more comfortable life than our parents have had. So we should be very careful of that. And Absolutely. I, I'd like you to actually expand on that. Well, well look, at, look at the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
Anas said, I lived with the Prophet for 10 years and he never said, oof, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So that word, oof, to never come out of the Prophet's mouth, mouth sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, um, is quite telling on how he raised children and how he upbrought children. So he he would never yell. He would never sigh. He would never say, oof. He would never... Uh, say something in a frustrated tone or voice. Why did you do this? Why did you do yeah. that? Yeah, why did you do this or why didn't you do that? So then what would happen? Obviously, if something was wrong, the Prophet ﷺ being the example would mirror that. And he was the exemplar. So if something was wrong, then it would be told and the Prophet ﷺ would say, well, this is how it's done. And that's how we need to upbring our children. Look, you didn't get it right this time. But this is what we need to do to get it right next time. But what we don't do and something that we stay away from is we characterize the child. So a child will be doing something or may have done something. We say, you are like this or you always do this or you always do that and you're this and you're that and you label them. Now you've labeled the whole child. You've characterized the child and what you've done, you've told the child I've taken that personally. You haven't, you've, you've, you've demonstrated no emotional regulation yourself and yet you want to impart emotional regulation onto your child. But yet you've displayed no emotional regulation. You've characterized them. So that that child begins now to believe that, to believe that and lose their self-esteem. And this is really important. So this psychological, if you like, component um, and point that we're making is something that a parent, each and every one of us, needs to be cognizant of. Don't characterize your child. If they make a mistake, so be it. It's not personal. They had some type of unmet need. You know what? Every, it's backed by an emotion. It just takes for you to come and unpack it a little bit. That's okay. Kids throw tantrums. What do you do? It's going to happen all the time. Well, I think I think that is a good point because what do you do? Like as as parents, we have the example of our parents, of course, mm-hmm. and no parent's perfect. So there's good and there's some bad. How do you filter out and actually know what to keep? How are you self-cognizant of what you're doing? And how do you actually measure whether or not the parenting you're implementing is working? Because you gave the example at the beginning of the prophets who had kids that um, obviously the prophets, they're sinless. So they would have done it in the best way, yet their kids came out in a particular way. So how do you actually measure? You can't just look at the child and say, okay, this child's doing this, therefore he's, we're doing it right. What's Well, I, I, think it's, I think it's crucial to point out that there's a difference between just simply measuring one thing and how how you might evaluate that as opposed to, but you need to fulfill your job. Mm. You need to fulfill your responsibility. Fulfill your responsibility. You'll see the outcomes in due course. And that's what Ghazali was saying. He said, never think that what you impart and teach falls on deaf ears. It's having an impact even if you don't see it, especially with our kids. And so your role is to fulfill your function as a parent. Right, the evaluation of that will come later. But what you need to focus on is the now. Is well, what's my job at hand? What am I doing at hand? And I think that's the the crux of of what we're what we're talking about. So you about do here. your job and then leave it with a loss. You have to. You have to do your job because what Ghazali was saying, and I think this is a crucial point. He said, if you accustom a child to virtuous traits and discipline, then that child will grow up accustomed to doing good things. And if you accustom your child to ill-discipline and doing bad things and you'll accustom that child likewise and that child may adopt immoral and wicked behavior. And so the idea is that you follow in the footsteps of the Prophet ﷺ in terms of upbringing and I think that's a really important point. And then 
what comes after that? You leave the hidayah in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hands. Now, I do want to make this point as well. And I, I you know, if, if you'd asked me, would you, if you could go back 22 years, 23 years since I got married to do a parenting course, I would have loved to have done that, a parenting course 22, 23 years ago. And I think every parent should do a parenting course. I think it's really important. And not just any parenting course. I, I want to be... I want to be mindful in saying that because even nowadays, right, you go to an expert and you think that expert is going to give sound advice on children. But like we said with the village, you don't know who's giving advice anymore because look <laughs> at what's happening in today's day and age before it's we true. bring it back to that, it's right? It, through media and advocacy, right, people are telling you what the value of a family ought to be, right, which doesn't agree with the Islamic ethos. They're telling you what the dynamic of a family should look like which doesn't agree with the Islamic ethos, and they're also telling you how a family should be, which may not agree with the Islamic ethos. Mm. So where you get your advice from is going to be really crucial. And that was fundamentally to your point. How do I bring my child? Get the sound advice from somebody who comes also from uh, from a religious, spiritual perspective. I think this is really key. So or at somebody, least have the framework, yeah, the Islamic have the framework, framework to decipher right parenting advice from wrong parenting Absolutely. Advice. Yeah. Having the Islamic framework, but also having the skills, the necessary skills. But going back and doing a parenting course, things to watch out for, things to, to be alert for, how to upbring them properly, be positive, right? And so my child, for example, will throw a tantrum. I've given this example countless times. I do it all the time, right? I've got a two-year-old. Uh, you know, she displayed great, you know, one of the her great tantrums once. And, and as she was going to her peak, crying, crying, crying for what she wanted. Really, I mean, intense crying and intense emotion. And throughout that whole time, I comforted her. I didn't yell. I didn't express frustration. Uh, I, I didn't take it personally. And I think this is really important. Take your, take your emotions out of the equation. Don't take it personally. Kids here are making it personal. There's, there's an unmet emotional need. Sat with her, comforted her, said it's okay, and throughout saying, look, you can't have that now, but it's okay. I understand how you feel. I know you want it. Let's see how we go tomorrow. And then I could see her peeking. And then as she peaked, I still comforting, comforting, comforting. And then her her cries become became less and less and less until in the end she came out of it. And it was quite normal. But she just needed comfort throughout that whole time. She needed guidance. She needed understanding. She needed care. She didn't need someone to come and yell. She didn't need someone to come and show her frustration. She needs someone to come and, and, and display high emotion because the expectation is in the clouds. No, that's not what they need. There's an unmet emotion, right? What are you going to bring to the table? That's the only skill that they have. That's what they know. That's how they tap in to communicate with us through their emotion. So they don't need for you to reciprocate and join in the chaos. So when your parents come, they join in the chaos, bring in their emotion, their own emotion to the table. And what have you done? You've now partook in that chaos that that child has advocated rather than give good guidance, give good understand or provide understanding, be with them. Your job is to share with them, give good guidance, right? But not punish. That's not your job. It's not your role. That's not what you were designed to do. Before we go into that topic of punishment, I think it's 
I think it's important also to say that when you do stuff up, we're all going to stuff up. There are going to be times when we scream at our child unnecessarily or the emotion actually does impact us. For anyone who has been a victim of a, a, a tantrum by a two-year-old, it's not easy. It's not easy. Times, so yeah. you may, uh, you know, say a few things that are out of, uh, you know, what is throw true. Tantrum. But you might throw your own tantrum. So we're not blaming anyone that does fall, but at least we know what is correct from that which is incorrect. You mentioned the topic of punishment. Punishment does have a role. I, I, I think there is a role for punishment within the Islamic uh, paradigm of parenting. But of course, not relentless punishment, but punishment which is regulated. So no belts? <laughs> no. <laughs> how, how does a Muslim use, I guess, punishment mechanisms to discipline their child? I would, I would decipher between two terms here, mm. right? Between punishment and consequences. Okay. We don't parent through punishment. We do not advocate for yeah being, the belts. No. I was joking. Yeah, I was, we, we never we we best steer away from parenting through punishment. That's very different to having consequences. So does parenting have any role? Yes, parenting. You parent, and there can be consequences, but consequences is not necessarily punishment. Punishment is almost like I've taken it personally. This is how you made me feel. And this is now meted out punishment for what you've done. As opposed to, look, you've done something wrong. I understand why you did, why you may have thought that that was okay. It wasn't okay. I can't just let it go. There needs to be a consequence. It's not personal, right? There's no tit for tat. This is not how we are. It's because of what you've done. Because of what you did. It's, that's, there has to be a consequence because this is part of, how we grow up. This is part of how we develop and learn that there is a consequence for our actions. But we don't we don't upbring our children through punishment. I think this is really important. And often we might see a, a parent say to the child, because you did that, this is now going to happen. As opposed to, look, you did the wrong thing. There's got to be a consequence for it. As opposed to, you did that, now all of these things are going to happen. No more going on the trip. No more uh, privileges for the next month. No more this, no more that. No. This is not how we do it, right? There's a consequence. Make it sure it's clear. Make sure it's understood that, look, if that happens, there's got to be some type of consequence. And the consequence could be as simple as, look, you've got some of these privileges. I'm going to take some away because that was so serious. You know, you shouldn't have hit your brother. You shouldn't have hit your sister. You shouldn't have hit this person or that person. You know, where kids fight all the time. You know, anyone who's got kids, you'll know that something we don't like that. There's a consequence for that. You know, the consequence is okay, you gotta hug, you know, you gotta talk it out, you gotta make up, but come chef, here. How do you how do you take down. the emotion out of it? You, you can't. have to. <laughs> you have to train yourself to be able to remove the emotion. And what an what it, the way that you do that is lower your expectation. Bring the thoughts to it. Kids only have limited skills, very limited skills. They only they are effectively behaving with the best that they have. They don't have more than what they have. Yet you're yelling at something that they don't yet possess a skill for. They don't possess that skill. They don't know how to negotiate like you know how to negotiate. They don't know how to- oh, They're pretty good. I well, pretty I mean, good. They, they're good for what they have, right? Their yeah. kids are good for what they have. They're fantastic for what they have, but they don't have the skills that you have because your expectations in the clouds. You see the situation, you think, well, but hang on, you shouldn't be behaving that way. Well, show them how. Teach them how. They need good guidance like we need good guidance. When we stuff up, we don't want someone to come and yell at us. We want somebody to come and say, look, you know, you got that wrong. wasn't good what you did. These are the consequences. This is, these are some of the things that should now take place. With kids, obviously, you need to bring a lot more love to it. I understand why you may have 
you know, you may have done that or why you may have done that, but that wasn't right, okay? And so these are some of the things that that we have to look at in the future. If a kid fights with another with the sister or brother, whatever the case may be, we sit them down, we talk to them, you know, we guide them, we laugh with them, we joke with them, but we make sure that we don't inflict upon them our own emotions and that we we use our own emotions to beat them with that. This is terrible. They'll end up learning that. And, and you find that emotional regulation for them is lost on them because the parent doesn't have it. How was the child expected to have it? Shut right. Up. One time you, you told me there's like four different styles, I think, of uh, disciplining maybe or something. And, and you mentioned one was a volcano where a person like – they, uh, a parent takes in the emotion of the child and eventually just erupts at them. Escalation. Is that the escalation? So a child will escalate. A child will say, can I have that? And the mother will say, or father will say, no. And then the child will say, can I have that? Please. No, you can't have that, I said. But I want it now. But I said you can't have it. No, I want it now. And then before you know it, the parent is shouting because the child has escalated. And what might happen is the child might give, and the parent might give in. So the child now learns as a behavior that if I escalate, I eventually get what I want. As opposed to, look, a child might ask for something. Parent says no. Child gets upset. What does a parent do? Because child's upset now. What do you do? Let's tell you what you do. Acknowledge the emotion and stay firm. Acknowledge the emotion. Look, I understand how you feel. I know you want it, but I can't give it to you. But stay firm. And this is a really important part, part of parenting. You don't have to yell. It's hard. You don't have to scream. You don't have to shout. But stay firm. But if you parent that way, imagine the psychological benefit that kids will have from that. Mm. Imagine the emotional benefit. Imagine the emotional intelligence of that. Imagine what kids will be able to impart to their brothers and sisters in the story that you just mentioned. I see that all the time. You show one kid, one child, one thing, and it's a beautiful trait, like you said, like it's okay, the plate broke. That child, next time a plate breaks or the the brother and sister broke the plate. They'll go and comfort them with the same comfort that you gave them. That is just one example. I must admit, I have many uh, bad experiences <laughs> of, of parenting. But but what happens when you make a, a mistake? Like, for example, say the child's escalating, you start to escalate. Should should there be a call out? Should you call yourself out at the end and say to the child, look, I did wrong. You shouldn't do it this way. This is the way you should do it. Does, is that something that should happen? Because maybe then the child sort of sees that as a weakness as an example. What do you think? I don't. I, there's there's nothing wrong in a parent saying that they got it wrong. Mm. That you know what it would have been better if I did that, and you know it would have been better if I said that at the time. Or if you said something you didn't mean, take it back. Take mm. it back. I, say look, sorry. Say, say sorry, sorry to yeah. your child. Take it back. Something, so example, yeah. You know, I said yeah. something. I'm sorry. I, I obviously I didn't mean that. I was upset at the time, and you know, in, in the, from now on in the future, I'm going to be more aware. And you know, because that child might be upset something you said. You can take it back. You can sit and you can bring that comfort. Kids are unbelievably forgiving, right? But it's important also that you don't overstep that mark. I think this is really important. You're supposed to be the guide, right? You don't want them to form this behavior or some break at some point in their life where they say that. I can't do a particular thing because I know my parent is going to react a particular way. Eventually, you can get there because there's going to come a point in the, every parent's life where kids make a pivot. And that pivot is from parent to pee. Mm. From parent to pee, they pivot. Now, parents think it'll never happen, but it's going to happen, right? What, what do we mean? I mean, you look at this example. When my kids were young, if you were saying, if you said to them, I was going for a five-hour drive, the kid will go anywhere with you. But at 12 or 13, 
if you say you're going for a five-hour drive, you can drag them in the car, right? But if their friend is going for a five-hour drive, what happens? I'm going. I'm going. Yeah. They pivot, right? Rather than you, you're their hero up to a certain point. You, that you could do no a wrong as a parent. Very sad day. I think it'll be a very it is. sad day. When they pivot. But you've got to be mindful. And what did the Prophet talk about? And what is the, what does the Sunnah talk about? It talks about being their friend. As they reach that point. That At what point do you become their friend? Well, this is at maturity, right? When they mature, you better hope that you've formed and you've invested into that emotional connection with your child. So that's when you begin to feel, you know, we we're talking about before, your parenting, hopefully that you start to feel the, the outcomes and that good connection. Because they're also going to have to navigate now all these emotions and new think, new new feelings, new sensations, this maturity, this awareness now on life, and now all of a sudden you're seeing this change in your child who's pivoted from you to your to their peers, and you don't know how to deal with that. You don't know how now to to basically to negotiate that. You don't know how to navigate through this minefield. Uh, you know, they, they're associating with these friends that don't look too good. They're starting to pick up these certain words. They're going on social media. They're spending more time here and there. Oh my God, what's happening to my world? And the parent thinks that their world is crumbling down. But you don't realize that you now have to up the ante in terms of giving greater guidance, being there more for them. They're going to need you now more in this time than they've ever needed you, right? Especially as they're getting older. And so you you, you have to be able, from a very young age, to have that self-regulation, emotional regulation, right? So there's a really good connection as they as they make that pivot from parent to peer. And so as they get older, they know they can come to you. There's no break. No break has happened. So they, they haven't formulated this view that, you know, my parent's going to react this way if I share something. My parent's going to react that way if I share something. Now, let's say that's happened, right? You need to up your skills. You need now to show your child that, look, you know what? Okay, some of the things and some of the ways that we went about things weren't the best, but I'm here for you. Can, can I give an example, Sheikh? So say, you know, teenage child, they come to you and uh, you've got this good relationship with them, right? And they think they can impart anything to you. It's, you know, it's it's that type of relationship. And then they come and say, dad or mom, I've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? Or, you know, I'm speaking to this person. Sorry to put you on the spot, Sheikh, but this is what people are dealing with, right? So how do you as a parent give them the advice and the guidance? Say they don't listen and they keep going ahead with whatever. How do you do that without breaking that relationship? And, you know, if, if they're not receptive, how do you do that? That's an excellent question. Look, the, ultimately the only person that you can control in this world is yourself. That's you are the only one that you can control. And if your child wants to step behind your back and do something that you're not aware of, you can't control that. that that's beyond your scope. It's beyond all of our scopes as a parent. But it doesn't mean you become absent and it doesn't mean you become accepting, right? And you can make that clear. You can say, look, this, this is not part of who we are. And you continue to give that advice. You continue to advocate for for the for the Islamic way, for the, the constructions that that we know that the Prophet ﷺ came to teach. So, if that were the case with one of my one of my you know one of my children, I would obviously uh, react in the same way that you're, you're probably seeing now. And obviously, I would be um, stressing the point of what our faith talks about and bringing them back and reminding them and constantly reminding them. 
But then also what I would be seeking is, do I need to change their environment? Because see, I'm a parent still at the end of the day. Mm. It doesn't mean that I have to, uh, I have to accept everything, right? I can look at the environment. I can look at their friends. I can look at their mentors. I can look at all these things. I'm a parent and that means I still got to expand my scope to see what else can I do. And I have to exhaust everything that I can do. And so if that means that, let's say, there's really bad behavior at one school or really bad environment, then I can change their schools. And that's within my, very well within my scope, right? I can introduce them to a new circle of friends, say at, you know, at an institution, at a local mosque, whereby there's good uh, people around them. People, and make it fun. Like yeah, you make it fun them. for them, yeah. right? You, you spend more time with them. You invest more time with them. So it's not just my child comes and says one thing and then I overreact and then it becomes all about that. No, you're missing the point. You could do all these things to bring into their environment, right? You bring in a positive environment. You bring, bring in good mentors. You, you up the ante at home in terms of your reminder with them. You spend more time with them. You spend less time at work if you have to. Spend more time with your child, right? Kids already have enough uh, absent-minded parents at home. Right, let alone being physically absent. Right? Get off your phones. Get yeah, off your social media. Parents on their phones. They're really absent-minded. So you have these tough topics. Mm. You know, a, a girlfriend, boyfriend, or you know, certain concepts and behavior that that is now happening. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you do nothing. You've got still so much to do. Right. Introduce them. Connect them. Keep them engaged. Um, keep reminding them. Keep it fun for them. Share with them. Right. Share with them. You know, tell them about the positive, good experiences that you had in life. Tell them about your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Can I just stop you there, Sheikh? Because some of the best parents I've seen, or at least from the fruits that they've produced, they're some of the most easygoing parents. And, you know, they're making their, the lives of their children very fun. And you see that the, that connection is maintained between, this, between the child and the father because it's loving, it's caring. And the relationship is fostered, it's strong. And you see, if the parent wants to go to the jam, to the masjid, the kids come along with him because they love their father. But I guess the repercussion of that is at times we see that when there's a loving, caring bond between the father and son, it becomes very friendly. And a lot of people will speak about the dangers of making this an overly friendly relationship to the point, I guess, the child will start taking advantage of the parents' love. You know, they say, don't take my kindness as a weakness. How can we mitigate that? The best way to mitigate exactly that point mm. is that's never a problem, but mind you. So that, yeah. that beautiful relationship between the father and It's beautiful. The I've child, seen the most lo loving Absolutely. relationships. You would, I would rather that over, over anything else. However, there's a point to add to that. The, the the father also has to be seen in the light that these are my values and these are my principles. And if you've instilled that into your child, then the child knows that these are the values and the principles for which you stand for. And they know that those are some of the things that they'll never cross. And so they may joke with you in a particular way and uh, take it sometimes that cross that line. That's all right. I mean, that, that may happen from time to time, especially having that lax relationship, but they still know what you stand for. And I think this is really important. And, I think where the, the lines are blurred is if you don't stand for anything. Mm. If you don't stand for anything, this is where advantage is taken um, in, 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 those, in those type of relationships when it's realized that, well, you don't stand for these. So the con it comes back principles. to the consequences. And the well, it does. It comes back to basically 
you adhering to the Islamic um, Islamic foundations and Islamic principles. See that the number one job that I have as a parent is how do I connect my child with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala? How do I connect them uh, to that beautiful relationship? Love Allah. How yeah. do I make how them do, love? How do Allah? I do that? And so all, but mind you. True love is when it's connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. True love mm. is when it's connected to Allah. If, well, see, this is the thing. Ghazali gives this analogy. He says that you have you have the shade of a tree and you're all shaded beneath the tree, right? You can't get sidetracked by thinking that whatever is beneath the shade of that tree becomes the main point of focus and forget about the shade. If it's not for the shade, nobody can be shaded. And it, the analogy that he was giving was to say if that- If it wasn't for the tree- yeah, if it wasn't for the sh- the tree, yeah, because it couldn't provide that shade. And he gave that like example saying, if you understand that everything is created by the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you also understand that you can't even possess the ability to love your child without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's power of keeping them into existence. So how can there be true love without acknowledgement first and foremost of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? True love only comes from the source and it only comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you say, that I am to independently love another being without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, well, what he calls that is not true love. Ghazali doesn't call that true love. He calls that false love. True love is only when it comes from the source because you understand that if it weren't for the source, nothing would enjoy existence. You wouldn't have this beautiful child. You wouldn't have it. So connecting your child with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, connecting them with the Prophet, making them love the Prophet more than yourself, more than anything that, that exists, when the child sees that, wallah, it mitigates any of these things that we're talking about in terms of me being exploited by my child and that, that having that loving relationship. It mitigates that because the child knows what you stand for. Mm-hmm. The child sees what you stand for. And he will have that fear of upsetting you. Absolutely. If he really loved you. Knows that you love Rasulullah. Yeah. Knows that you love Allah. Knows that you love Deen. Knows that you love Salat. Knows that you love the Islamic ethos. Knows that you'd give anything for the sake of Islam. Child knows that because you've instilled these beautiful characteristical traits within the child. So that mitigates all of that. And I think it's a really key point. So if you find yourself uh, being put on a, a platform that, you know, children are going to start to take a bit of advantage, come back. Give a good reminder. Make sure that they understand really the crux of what it's all about. It's about Allah. It's about the Prophet. It's about, you know, these beautiful morals, principles, values that we have in our in our faith. Okay, so so um one of the biggest things today is like influence of society. I think that's one of the things that we all fear. Uh, now I'm thinking about my one of my daughters. She's going to school next year. Do we send to Islamic school, public school? All these questions, right? And I'm sure that doesn't stop. With seven kids, Sheikh, I'm sure probably keeps going to, you know, the 30. Um, now, one of the biggest ways that kids tap into these different ideas and get exposed to it is through social media, through the phone, the smartphone. And I think a question that every parent has, particularly us, where that's not in, in question yet, but it will be at some point, is like at what stage do you expose your kids and actually give them this device, which now opens them up to the rest of the world? As I don't know what it was like for you, Kamal, but like I remember in high school, I wanted phone bad, and that was when it was still the Nokia's, you know, just the snake. That's why I just wanted to play snake. That's what I wanted. But now it's so much more than that, right? So when is that age? How do you do that? You know, what's what's the go, Sheikh? Social media is a really interesting dynamic, especially in the current Western secular modernity in the Western world, mm. in the world today, in the in the, in the current modern world. If you haven't already given your child a phone or social media at a very young age, don't. 
Not yet. You can wait. You don't have to give them a phone or a iPad from the from the moment they walk or from the moment they're born. Nowadays, that's what's happening. Child's born, he's an iPad, right? Or he's an iPhone. You don't have to do it. It's like a babysitter for a lot of people. It doesn't have to be the case. I'm a I'm an advocate of delaying that as much as you can. I'm really an advocate of this. And how I far? I've propagated this a lot before. And before I talk about how far, I've really pressed this point historically. And I, I even remember I was criticized by one person who works in the in the in the social uh, social sphere, and that person criticized me. And at the at the time, he was talking about it being fantastic for kids at two years old because they can learn this fantastic apps and whatnot. At the age of five, when his son turned five, uh, he came by himself without me telling him a single word, and he apologized because he made a big argument at that time that I raised the issue with him, and that circulated amongst his friends. And but he came back and he said, "Look, there were so many ills involved with that." And I said, can you tell me about some of them? And he began to tell me about some of them. Addiction, right, reliance, dependence. We're talking five years old. So from two to five, that child had learned dependence, that child had learned nearly, like, become attached to it to such an extent where if you gave it, behaved. If you took it away, misbehaved. This becomes now behavior management. You're a behavioralist, like you're – so you've got to be really careful. Can we call out the brother? Can I call him out? No, we can't call him out. But we don't have to settle – we don't have to settle, right? And I would be really important of this. It's a gadget. It's a device. They don't have to have it. So what point do we introduce? At what point do we introduce social, social media? As they get older, right? Obviously, they're going to want to go, they go to school. The year seven, year eight, people have it. I wouldn't introduce it at such an early age. I wouldn't. I simply would. I'd make them aware of it as they start to get older, in the year sevens, in the year eights, in the year nines, right? I would make, certainly make them aware of it, but I would make them aware as well of why that I wasn't going to give that to them, right? Even there's some restrictions around age and what in what age you can use social media, right? So it's not just unrestricted that from the moment they're in year four that you give them social media. That doesn't, doesn't work that way. But from a personal facet, I would be careful and I would, I would wait and I'll tell you why. Someone listening would say, well, why is he giving that advice? It's, it, it doesn't make sense. Okay, look at the competing challenges today that a young person has to face. Back... 20 years ago, you and I were competing for a social identity, but in the real world. Amongst our 10 friends. 10 friends, 20 <laughs> friends, yeah. but in the real world. Yeah. Nowadays, they're competing for two identities. One of them is in, in the real world, and the second one is in the virtual world. So not only are they having to ask, who am I in the real world, but who am I in the virtual world? So they've got two competing identities now that they're trying now to fit into these and spaces. Seek validation amongst both. They want validation in both worlds. It's really, really. And you look at when we talk about, um, you know, mental health and mental illness and the type of toxic uh, things that are being toxic behaviors and toxic uh, um, associations, whether it's in social media, you know, it's running rampant on social media. So I would be really careful to come back to the point I would wait. And I wouldn't give it to them too soon until they can get to a point whereby, you know, they're, they're displaying a type of maturity. You've got a really good relationship. Sure, you can explain, you know, this is what that is and this is what that is. And, you know, if they need, let's say, for example, they have ambitions to start their own business, you know, this is how you would use that and this is how you would use that. Be responsible. And as normal thing, as normal way of, of life, as they start to get older, you can start to introduce more things, but you don't introduce everything in one fell swoop. 
right? So you're saying, Sheikh, that it's different per child, right? It's not the, a specific age. Look, we've got to be careful. And the reason why we have to be careful is because when you put the when you put a phone in a child's hand, I think you have to understand also some of the ramifications or consequences or outcomes that can happen as a result. Now, look, I currently work in a number of schools. Some of the things that I'm seeing all the time is that kids have unrestricted access. And I think parents need to be aware that you don't have to do that. You don't have to give your child an unrestricted phone and give them access to the world at such a such a young age. You go into the phone nowadays, you can restrict some of the apps. You can restrict some of the content that they can access. So it doesn't have to be a thing that you give them access to and that opens up the world for them at such a young age. So I would be careful. At the moment, in a personal facet, I'm a sponsor to about 10 kids. And what that means I'm a sponsor to is that kids have formed addictions. And the addictions that they've formed has been uh, been discovered by parents. It's been discovered by teachers. It's been discovered by social workers. And so they reach out to people in the environment, people who see them in the environment. And I've been sucked into that sort of that 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 the, those situations. And at the moment, I'm I'm, a, I'm currently a sponsor. So what that means is that uh, a child might access um, or is not allowed to access. Uh, certain things on on the internet um, or certain websites. If they do, I get an alert, so I'm immediately notified, and so I'm able to follow up that child and say, "Listen, you know, we had an agreement. This is what we we put on put out on the table." And it's not enough to say that I trust my child. You're a parent, and part of parenting also means that yet I I do have trust for my child, and I trust that they have these values. But it doesn't mean that you expose them to everything. So we should monitor the activity. We have to be mindful of that. Monitoring, I think that's a bit different. Yeah, not 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 monitoring per se, but you have to be aware of what they're looking at. You have to be mindful of what they're looking at. You you know, at simple things, simple basic functions at home or basic uh, uh, you know rules at home. That computer, for example, is not in the bedroom, right? Public space. It's in a public space, right? It's in the lounge room, it's in whatever TV room, or it's on the dining. Could be even on the dining table. No device in the room. So if they have a device. They're not allowed to take it in the room. It has to be in a designated area before they can go into their room, right? And especially when they're really young, you know, I'm sure you would monitor. If they had an email, you'd monitor certain things. And as they get older, you'd start to give them more privacy and, and they start to become their own person. We understand all of these things, right? But slowly, slowly, you have to have measures in place. And so a device, no, I wouldn't give an unrestricted device. You've got to be careful. And I wouldn't have this notion in mind that trust them at all costs. No. Trust at all costs and expose at all, uh, you know, expose them to everything. What are you setting your child up for? You know, because they're navigating these really difficult emotions at this time. So you don't want to make it difficult for them. You want to make it easy for them. Even if your child knows what's right, it doesn't necessarily mean he's just gonna no, follow in. You'll be tempted. You know, no temptation. You don't yeah. want to create that temptation. So you got to be really careful about that. So have a good relationship with your child. Don't set them up for failure. Have a really good environment at home. But also what you put in their hand, I think I'd wait up to a certain age. I wouldn't introduce social media right away, right? As they get a little bit older, once they start to get a little bit older and they have obviously more understanding about the world, then you can start to introduce these things and the training wheels can come off as they get older. But just to assume um, that I trust my child at all costs, therefore I can expose them to anything and everything and they're uncorruptible, well, that's not true. If you put purity um, in something that is impure for a while, there's going to be some effect. 
So yes, you've imparted very good traits on your child, but you've got to be really careful. It doesn't mean that you now give up your job or, or, and your role as a parent because you've done what you needed to do at the age of seven and then now you can just let them go. It doesn't work that way. Parenting is lifelong. And something helpful, I think you can elaborate on this would be to provide them with an alternative. If you are going to restrict access to social media or if you're going to tell them, look, no relationships or, or anything like that of the sort, there should be some form of alternative to, I guess, incentivize them to stay away. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, look, it's certainly. Well, that's through either keeping them engaged, keeping them in a sport. Right. Maybe you play in a particular game with them. Uh, so you do keep them engaged like that. You could potentially search out things together on the internet. In a, so that's a safe space again. So they access it. We're not saying that they're denied access, right? But the access is done in such a way that it's safe. And this is how kids, when they first go to school, this is how they learn it. You know, Department of Education has restricted access on on you know on the portals um, and what they can uh, what they can uh, access at school, so they can't just access anything. Department of Education has restricted access to so many sites for these very reasons. So they so kids are allowed to be able to access the internet world in a safe space. And as they get older, obviously they learn more about it. So this is how uh, and 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 well, the way that we want to also be with our kids uh, should be gradual, should be staged, it should be step by step. And it shouldn't be um, to the extent whereby everything is open at any time. They can do what they like and it's unsupervised. I think that is irresponsible. I think eventually you're opening up your, your child uh, potentially to a world of hurt and temptation. I think you have to be really careful. You've got to be really mindful. At least you have to be engaged. Know what your child is doing. It's different to saying, I'm going to spy on my child of every hour of every day. You don't want to be a helicopter parent. I think we want to disassociate from that. You don't want to be a helicopter parent because you do also want them to function in society. So I give you the skills and you're able to utilize those skills to function. I do also need you to navigate because I can't watch you every hour, every single second of every day, right? But I also don't want to leave myself completely oblivious to what's happening in your world. I need to also be engaged to know what's happening, right? So there's got to be that balance as if you're fishing, right? You can't give too much. Because otherwise, you know, you 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 can't you can't catch that fish. And if you if you yank it back too hard, right, you, you'll tear the line. So you've got to be really careful. It's a beautiful balance. You've got to stay engaged. You've got to stay in the fight, right? Do your job as a parent. Do what needs to be done, right? But not too much that you're overbearing, but not too little that you're oblivious. You're not knowing what's happening with your child. So as they start to get older, right, th those managed approaches, those training wheels can start to come off. And they can start to be introduced to more things. MashaAllah. And I think I think it's a balancing act. It's an art. It's something which is a, a lifelong journey. Sometimes we will fall. We will falter. We will make mistakes. But I guess as long as the intention is there, I'm here to raise these Muslim children to be, you know, inshaAllah, bi'idhnillah ta'ala, with me in Jannah, as a family together. Now, moving forward, Sheikh, there is a very important topic that I personally have experienced and many others within my shoes have felt the same way. So we hear a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he would say, you know, none of you will believe until I become more beloved to you than your father and your children. And then obviously, and the rest of mankind. And we hear other, you know, ayat in the Quran where Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala he says, لا تلهكم أموالكم ولا أولادكم عن ذكر الله. Um, do not let your wealth or children avert you from the remembrance of Allah. So many times we see like there is a, I don't know if cognitive dissonance is the word, but there's like, there's a barrier between 
our children and achieving that proximity or that closeness with Allah. And sometimes we will go through, it will have a spiritual toll on us when we're spending more time with our children. So how do we achieve that balance? How do we achieve that balance spiritually and at the same time giving our children what is best for them? Spiritually for ourselves, but also giving our children what is best for them. There's a fantastic verse that you quoted and you cited, and there's two points about this verse. First of all, Allah Here, Allah is not saying you can't have. We naturally have an inclination to our kids, and people have a natural inclination to want wealth, right? So these inclinations exist. They're human uh, One of the greatest dispositions. loves is, Absolutely. is the love for your children. Human dispositions. We can't rise above that. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes his point, and this lahu, and dhikrillah, he makes his point that you can have these things, but as long as they don't distract you from the primary objective. What's the primary objective? The primary objective is dhikrillah. So having these things in and of itself, they're absolutely fine. And the scholars, they, they, they make this point, and this is the second point that I want to make. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, So what Allah is telling us is you can love many, many, many things. But ultimately, Allah should not be an equal love. Allah needs to be a dominant love. So loving your children, loving wealth, loving all of these things, but not loving Allah equally, that's the problem. You want to love Allah to the extent that his love or love for him dominates all the other aspects of love in your heart. So here, I love my children, but I love Allah greatest. The love that I have for him dominates all the love, the, all, the, all the objects of love that I have in my heart. So I can love many things. Loving many things is permissible. I love my children. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my parents. I have all of these objects of love that are halal. Absolutely. I love spending time with family. It's an object of love. It's be- this is actually part of the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad I love this. But as a believer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, but the love that you have in your heart for Allah needs to be dominant and greater. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu. La tulhikum amwalakum wa la uladukum al-dhikrillah. It started with a believer. And the believer, Allah characterized him as ashaddu hubba lillah. Loves Allah the greatest. So when you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the greatest, now your pie looks different. What does that mean? What does that mean? Before I might have recited Surah Yasin during that time, but now I find myself not reciting Surah Yasin and playing with my child. What's going on? I've got no more, no more time to do that and I'm doing all of this. But as Sayyid al-Buti, he said it best, the, the pie of deeds can be cut and look differently for different circumstances. He said, that a young person who's not married has the time to recite the Quran day or night. But the married person who's got kids doesn't, doesn't have that time, can't recite Quran day or night. You're putting the child to bed, you're changing nappies, you're doing. And the sheer fact that you're putting your child to bed and you're, that you're helping around the house, he said that is in lure of what you might have done in that time had you otherwise not had those kids. So the pie of deeds looks different for different people. Changing an appy, helping around the house is a ibadah. And the, the person who's single and who has that time can perform those functions, but you can't at that time. But does that mean that what I am doing is lesser than what that person is doing? No. So the rewards it's are just, the same? The rewards are the same. The chart or the pie of deeds looks different. This is what Ibn Atta'illah uh, and, and Sayyid al-Buti were effectively saying. So 
our, our, our behavior and our actions can look different. But it doesn't mean I'm disconnected from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From no, one ibadah, ibadah to another ibadah. From one ibadah to another ibadah. But I know consequently, I know that in my heart, the love that I have for him and Rasulullah dominates all things. It dominates the love that I have for my children. Dominates the love that I have for any family member. Dominates the love that I have for any transient being. Dominates all objects of love. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the love that I have for him is the greatest. And this is the point. They love Allah the most. Really important to remember. So there's no compromise. I'm doing. I'm taking so what my family is, out what on holiday. So what is the from from the dhikr of Allah? What is the aversion from the remembrance of Allah? Effectively, it means that what you've uh, what you've been sidetracked from doing is fulfilling that main objective, which is could be in anything. Now that could be in fulfilling obligations. It could be in fulfilling right. your practices. It could be in fulfilling uh, the remembrance of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala within those within those practices. Or delaying, like let's say, for example, a person were to be with family and uh, and delayed the dhuhr prayer, right? Or delay delayed a particular prayer. These are the type of examples that we outside do. of its time. Outside of its time. So you delayed it outside of its time, or you were going to undertake a particular act and that you no longer did it because you you were preoccupied with A B C D. How many people also do we see shirk religious obligations? Um, and even so, would you say the faraid? Are you saying not only faraid, but see, even engaging, right? So even engaging al amru bil maruf wa nahi anil munkar, right? Enjoining good and telling people to desist away from from disobedience, right? This fundamental characteristic that underpins each and every one of us. For you to deny that because of let's say you dis you're distracted by your engagement with family, how many times do we find that a, a person in the household does have free time? does have spare time, but gives absolutely no voluntary time to faith. Yeah. Gives no time back. Contributes nothing to that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Any time that they have spare is spent on the couch. Any time that they have spare is spent only at home. Any time that they have spare, nothing is done for deen, right? What happens in this regard? Who are you in this world? Don't, don't also people have a right to be, to be reminded? For you to get up as well, to get out there and remind people and be active and be engaged. Where are the mentors if everybody's going to sit at home? Where are the guides if everybody's going to stay at home? Where are they? If nobody goes to the mosque, what will happen to our society? This is what underpins our society. We have some time, we give that time. Right? So although your time will be limited and reduced, give from that time. We give from that time. So this lahu and this uh, distraction, right, or being taken away, being taken away from what from do, doing what needs to be done, right? From engaging what needs to be engaged, from fulfilling what needs to be fulfilled. These are the fundamental points that we talk about. So, so Sheikh, just on that, I feel like this actually ties back to the whole village concept because the second part of what you talked about, which is still finding time to give back to the community, back to you know extended family, as an example, um, this actually serves a child because if you're not engaging in the wider community then how can we expect that this child is going to have a community to grow up in? Like if we're, if we're not giving that time, if we're not building those networks, if we're not developing the friendships between families, then who are these, who's your child's friends going to be when they grow up? So this is actually planting the seed for them. It's, it's an important part of parenting. Absolutely. And if, you, if your mindset is such that I care about the kids of others, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will also take care of your kids. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will also look favorably upon you because you're concerned about others as well. You know, come at the dinu to that. As you do to others, you will also see the fruits of. This is part of what we know. And so when you go out and you engage, 
Allah will also take care of you. You know, when you go out for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's an angel there that's making dua for you, right? That minds your house and, you know, you, you make the dua, tawakkaltu ala Allah, for example. We know the benefits that come from that. We know the angels that the Prophet ﷺ told us about who make dua for us at that time. So when you do something for uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sake, you know, it, it's this re uh, reciprocal relationship that we have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We do, but he, he won't just let you do without giving you tenfold, twentyfold, seven hundredfold, however okay, much he wants, okay. right? So when you look after others, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take care of you. When you care for the kids of others, Allah will also take care of your kids. Doesn't mean that I don't fulfill my function as a parent, of right? That holds first and foremost. I need to do that. Uh, but those things that I can't control, Allah will look after my kids for the things that I can't control that are outside of my reach. And he'll also give me good guidance when I need it. Right, so these are some of the things just to be mindful of. We live in a society now where what what what's the society doing? Society is trying to remove God from the equation. Society is trying to remove faith from your child. Yes. You say, but hang on a sec, that sounds so alarming. Well, it's true, and and they're not any longer trying to do it right in in a in a in a in a Subtle. discreet way, yeah. in a secret way. It's so overt now. Yeah. They're fundamentally saying. Why do we need God in the equation anymore? Why is faith important in this Our equation Our feelings anymore? are enough. Your feelings are enough to do what you like, right? And this is actually not a good thing where you teach kids to become the or, or, or to be effectively to become subservient to their own egos as opposed to subservient to the one true God. People are asking, why do you need God in this relationship? Why do you bring God to this equation? Why do you have to make God everything about God? This is where society is going. Advocacy is undermining uh, again, through the institutions of media, what a family looks like, what a family stands for, um, what it's all about. But where we're going in this world, people are trying to remove God from beneath us to say it's okay to do what you want, to do what you want, to be how you want, to execute any behavior is okay. Um, just don't, you know, don't pay attention to your faith. Don't pay attention to, to, to you know, to the tenets of your faith, to your underpinnings, to the fabric of who you are. That's not important anymore. And people are now saying, you know, you don't need actions to get by. You know, you don't need actions to gain Allah's pleasure. Well, you know, we having hope is one thing. We don't cling, sure, we don't cling to our actions, as, our actions as a source of our hope. That's true. But you have to understand that God made actions the vehicle to attract his mercy, right? So that's the vehicle. Yes, it's true. People don't enter Jannah based on deeds, but... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he made the actions, the vehicle to attract his mercy, which was shown by the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. right? So it's adherence. Islam is adherence. Islam is not, you know, something makes Wins me feel good. Desires. Islam is utter adherence and surrender to that adherence. But more so, it's also acceptance and inner acceptance of that adherence. So it's not just I adhere and that's it. Does my heart also accept that adherence? Sometimes people, you know, they say, I performed a particular act, but, you know, I, do I really have to do it? Like they weren't really accepting about having to emulate, emulate the Prophet ﷺ. In Islam, it's also about having an inner acceptance, an inner disposition that is happy and pleased with the act that is being performed. Your desires have to correlate with what I came Absolutely. with to believe Allah. So this society, I, I don't want I don't want to sound like an alarmist, right? 
But we absolutely need to be aware and we absolutely need to be cognizant of what society is happening, of what's happening in society and what society is doing as well to our children. Don't settle. Do we run away, Sheikh? I'm not saying run away. I'm no. not saying run away. I wouldn't I wouldn't the mountains. run away into the mountains, <laughs> the caves. you know, unless you're really, really worried about your faith or the, the faith for your for your children. But then some people have said, look, I want to make hijrah. I want to I want to get out of this place. And that's okay for them. That's not bad. Some people say, look, that's what I want to do. And that's fine for them to do that. They made the best decision based on what their family was enduring and what they wanted as an outcome for their for their family. That's okay for them to do that. There's no problem. And I look back and I say, if I could turn back time, you know, would I have settled? You know, we I, I sort of look at my frame of reference. Like, did I settle in suburbia here? Mm. Would it have been better to go out far and sort of, you know, so I question those things sometimes. But then again, not everybody can do that, right? So what is practical? Set up your home, right? Set up your home, right? Have a good library. Have a good library. Heroes about Islam. Talk to them about the heroes about Islam. Just some quick tips, right? Have a good library at home. Have good books, right? Men around the messenger. Women around the messenger. Children around the messenger. All these books. Go buy those books, right? Men around the messenger. Women around the messenger. Children around the messenger. Read those books with your kids, right? Every day. Make a contribution. Hadith reading. You and your wife, you and your kids. Wife reads one day, you read the other day. If the child is old enough, let the child be in the sort of the habit, get the child in the habit of, of reading as well, right? Once they get a little bit older. On a daily basis, if you can, eat together, do things together, experience together. I took my kids, uh, all my kids on a 10-kilometer hike, right? My daughter, who was uh, two years old at the time, I held her the entire way, Right? experience together, do fun things together. Make sure that you do that in the home. So set up your home world. In the house, have a musalla. Very important, have a musalla. If you go pray in the mosque, fine. But make sure you come home, reserve your sunnah until you get home, right? Or that you is can, the sunnah. That is the sunnah, right? Or pray your sunnah, you can even pray your sunnah there and you can you can go to the masjid so you can balance it out. Have a musalla at home. Let them know there's a special area in the, in the, in the home, in the house, right? So you have just already... Heroes, you talk about identities, so you're building a character, a really beautiful character around Islam. And also, to add to that, one of the greatest upbringings to a child, one of the greatest upbringings to a child, is how a father treats his wife. Yeah. And how she reciprocates that back, right? How the wife reciprocates that back. And if you have a loving relationship, a loving relationship, that is one of the best upbringings that a child could be brought into because you're seeing my father respond this way, my mother respond this way. He's talking like that. She's talking like that. So you're displaying affection, right? There's, you know, whether it's through an embrace of a hug, right, for example. Um, but the, the how you talk to each other, the friendly dynamic that you have, being playful, this is really important for the upbringing of a child. The relationship the mother and father have with each other. Right, as an upbringing for a child, really important for them to see that because part of the cycle when they get older. So remember that. So these dynamics you've created a good space, good safe space. Who comes into your home? Really important. Don't just let anyone into your house. If you know they're going to talk about inappropriate things, don't let them in. Keep them out. Keep them away. It's okay. You, this is your household. This is where you protect. This your your. This is a sanctity. Your fortress. This is your fortress. This is where you protect it. Yep, right? Yep. Kids come over, they will have iPads. I've got 25, 35 nephews and nieces, right? There's no way iPads come in, right? iPads are put at bay, everybody's playing outside, right? 
how you do that. They're so young, right? So getting them used to that. So my kids don't also feel left out. We get them outside. We get them playing. You join in. You partake. You make it fun for them. You make it exciting for them. No one said parenting was easy. Parenting is a job. Parenting is a 24-hour job, and it's hard. Be engaged. Be compassionate. Be merciful. Take the emotion out of it, right, if you can, right? Give good guidance. Give good guidance and be there for the other person. I just I want to make this point, and I think it's really, really crucial, about how when, when a relationship function, functions well, how kids can benefit from that, right? And so that, that just is, is as far as, say, for example, this is a true story, father coming home, right? Uh, he used to see that uh, he, you know, his wife was really tired looking after the kids. True story. Um, and, you know, it was causing problems because he'd have a nap at that stage. And so he he spoke about that with me. And I told him, look, come home and don't have the nap. See what's going on at home, right? Because she's worked equally, if not harder than you, especially looking after kids. Really tough job. Mentally hard job. Yeah. In a really private space. And that's not easy. It takes a lot of a lot of mental strength to do that. I said, so rather than come home and sleep, see what's needed. Serve your family. I said, never sleep again. I said, if you, <laughs> I said, if you can do that, I, I guarantee you, right, that everything will just work a lot more smoother. And it did. Okay. One little tweak. Give her her check. time. Huh? Give her her time. She needs that time. This is really important, right? And that's so important for the kids and they grow up. He got to spend more time with his kids. This is really important for the functioning of a family. So it's a holistic approach. It's not just one thing went wrong and I got upset and I made it known. Stop looking at your kids like an empty vessel that just need all your wisdom. What relationship do you have with them? Sure, that's going to happen. You're going to fill them up with a lot of wisdom. But also part of that is what relationship do I have with my kids? Do I give them the time? Do I give them the space? Do I acknowledge their emotions? It's really important. Do I understand their emotions? Do I acknowledge what they're going through? They go through so much. How much do I tear my kids down for what they came to share or for what they they displayed an emotion? I tear them down for that as opposed to I acknowledge what they were going through. We all have the emotions. All human needs are the same. I want to be acknowledged. I may have an unmet emotional need, right? And I need guidance, not punishment. I need guidance. These are the skills I have. Kids probably won't have it. So these are just some quick tips, right? Be mindful of social media. Be careful. Don't give it to them all at once. No. Don't give them advice from the moment that they, they come out into this world. No. Right? Don't do that. Don't make these fatal mistakes at such a young age. Right? Get off your backside. Work hard. Put a little bit of input as opposed to just sitting them on the device for five hours and I don't want to hear your voice. That's not parenting. That's not parenting at all. That's nanny parenting. That's you doing the wrong thing, becoming accustomed uh, or accustoming that child to that behavior. So what you need to do is you need to balance that out, have a good approach, but more importantly, right? More importantly, you need to uphold those religious values. If you you have to be the embodiment, they have to see that in you. If you are the embodiment of that in your child's life, they're going to benefit. They're going to see that you held, held those values. Dad's funny, mum's funny, they're really funny, right? They're it's a loving home, I feel safe here. And I can I can basically talk about my feelings. I'm not I know I'm not going to get shut down for it, right? So we all we all I guess have that desire to belong, and the best belonging they can sense is in the family, and if it's loving. And of course, it comes back to the overarching objective of everything within the family 
It's to promote the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to protect the deen of Allah. And so we can meet Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he'll be proud of us. Because I think there is a hadith and you can probably end on this, where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, have, have children and have children so he can be proud of us on the day of judgment. But the key is that these children are great Muslim children. And we ask Allah to facilitate us and to help us in this regard. I mean, I think it's, it's tough. It's tough, Sheikh. It's hard. It's not easy. It's, it's not, not easy. It's not easy at all. But it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile. And look, you know what? Be laid back. You know, I, I there's a, as they get older, you start to, you know, you start to explore more with them. I, I've got running jokes with my kids. You know, I, they they work now, and I tell them, look, I, I tell them the story. You know, you know, I own your money, yeah. <laughs> so they they look at me. What do you mean? I say, you know, there, there's a hadith in the time of the Prophet where. One man was complaining that his father was taking all his money. And so there was a complaint he made, he put in, and they were going to Rasulullah. And in that time, Jibreel came to the Prophet and he said, He said, When the man arrives, the father arrives, ask him what he was uttering on the way. He's uttering something. Ask him what he was saying on the way. And so they come to the Prophet and uh, you know, the, the, the young son puts his case forward about his dad, the money and whatever. And the, the father begins begins to tell him, um, he begins to tell the prophet, you know, he has a sick a sick uh, family member and I take the money to care for for, for her and, and for the family and, and whatnot. And then anyway, the prophet turns around and says, what were you saying on the way? What were you saying to yourself on the way? And then he begins to, to say to the prophet that I was saying, I raised you since you were young. I looked after you and no one could look after you and so on and so forth. And he kept going. And then the prophet turns around and he says to the, he says to the son, he said, your father owns you and your money. <laughs> I'm already saying this about my four and a half year old. Sheikh, I think for a lot of people, um, given the world that we're in right now and the what you were saying before about the society, like it takes a lot out of you to be a parent. Um, and sometimes given, again, the society that we're in, like we're very individualistic whether we recognize it or not. So we tend to think that you know, this is taking away from me and who I am and my time. Uh, so bringing the deen into it really helps put things into perspective because you can see that by you doing this, it's actually working on you and it's improving your connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think that's what we need to hold on to. That's what we always need to remember that this isn't for us. This isn't about us. This is about this trust we've been given, these children, and that this is now becomes our object, part of our objective to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that if they're incomplete, we'll, we'll be incomplete. So we need to keep this mindset in order to keep going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sheikh, for joining us. A very, very important topic. A topic that I personally believe will need a follow-up for the many different facets of parenting and all that involved. It's been an honor to host you and we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to like, subscribe and hit the bell for notifications.